Let's take indeed the latest and best example. So let's take highly successful people, clever, intelligent, educated, rich, charismatic, and let's learn from them. Let's create two groups of individuals. One, let's say, Gates and Jobs. The other one, let's say, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson at a pinch. And let's analyze what we feel when we hear about these individuals. What inspires us? What has inspired generations already? Let's consider the background on which they competed. Well, for the first group, Gates and Jobs not only had very different social or technological or engineering visions, open software versus closed software, closed environment, yet optimized versus open environment, unoptimized per definition, and so on and so forth. This group outdid each other continuously to deliver the best product, the best experience. The second group, Musk, Bezos, Bronson, not really competing on the same ground, absolutely granted, but somehow put on the same level, for sure. One a visionary, the other one a highly successful business person. Well, what do they do with that? The first group, I have the impression, was building a story, their own story for certain, the story of their company for certain, but also, to a large extent, the story of mankind. Remember this 1984 revolutionary advertisement for Apple? This was speaking much more than simply against Microsoft. This was really laying out kind of a social, cultural, historical vision, and this is what we were driven by. This is actually how we went into the 90s. This is how we started the notice. Then this inspired actually the second group of people. And again, I'm not saying there is a good, there is a bad. There is simply factually two very, very different approaches to how we see, they see their role. The implicit story I hear from Musk and Branson and Bezos, is actually quite explicit. The goal is to go to the moon, to go to Mars, because, because Earth will become too small, because we as human beings will become too limited. This is literally what is said. That is a vision of sorts, but this is certainly not a storyline. This does not feel like a momentum for everybody. This can be visionary, but is it a vision? That is the big question mark. From the first group, we can actually write about the personal values of these people. We know them. For the second group, there are values, individual values, but does it create, again, a layer of implicit trust in them? On the very contrary, I think it creates an implicit distrust of it. This sets us on the path to the next discussion, in my opinion, which is that to counter the loss of implicit trust, to counter and stop this erosion, it does not have to be 
all about conspiracy theories and crop circles. It does not have to be about fighting fake news. It has to be a signal that to rebuild a common future, to address the challenges which we are facing, which will will continue to face, we have to restart building this layer of implicit trust. And this starts with sharing values, actually explicitly demonstrating values that work. To truly reset a common vision for humankind and address problems and challenges which we all think are important, we do need a storyline where there is no backseat driver. We do need a storyline where there is no hangers-on or laws, where we actually have a vision, a future, a storyline on which we all individually contribute. That is the positive outcome from regarding this loss of uh, implicit trust. This will be developed in the next session. This will develop in the next article. Thank you so much for your attention and talk to you very soon again. Indeed, without implicit trust, there can't be a common vision for society. There can't be simply a, a shared future. Actually, this lack of implicit trust is self-fulfilling. First and foremost, the erosion accelerates the perceived duplicity of any answer, of any decision, of any action taken, or highlights, wrongly, potentially, the incompetence of these intellectual authorities and benchmarks. Actually, our expectations that we have kind of a path, a common human path, lit by these authorities, simply disappears. Actually, if you know that your public has lost this implicit trust in you, how do you speak to it? How do you explain decisions to a public that you know don't believe in what you are saying, or that you believe is unable to listen to the right arguments? How to be trusted if you don't trust? How to trust if you're not trusted? Just a simple example, the UK study on the so-called management of the early COVID crisis in 2020. Let's call it mismanagement as a draw. At least in the UK, it's not done by the health minister himself, not like in Belgium, but this shows the very direct impact this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy has. We all know the stories about the mask, that they were actually unnecessary, then necessary, that in the beginning they were even dangerous to use if not used the right way, and so on. This happened everywhere in the world where there were simply shortages of masks, or simply the authorities were taken by surprise. Fair enough. Already that's bad. But what was revealed was actually the lockdown itself, and I'm sure it was not only in the UK, was delayed purely on the basis that the government doubted that the people would very basically listen to the need to stay in a lockdown. What did actually happen? Well, you don't have to read the Times or the Sun or the Guardian to know that the public, the UK public, the French public, the Belgian public massively followed the order 
actually tracking the people who did not follow these lockdown orders was rather simple. It was a few units. Of course, you had a few stupid people. You had still people who were going to run because they needed to run. You had people who were going to play Pokemon and uh, they ended up in car chases. That was in France. You did have some celebrities who insisted on having their own birthdays, actually feasted and wined and dined. And you even had the odd minister who actually did not follow its own orders. Fine, that's fine. But next time, will the public, will we trust the authorities, the intellectual authorities, the scientific authorities, and follow orders silently? Well, overall, probably, because we are reasonable people, we can be trusted for that. But still, it does not mean we will do it nicely. And if you look at the demonstrations in Sydney, of all places, two weeks or three weeks back, well, that says enough. Further than eroding the trust, stretching actually the very social bond of our societies, the loss of implicit trust leads directly to the wrong decisions taken then. But further, this has already been acted. There is no country, not in the US, where we had to actually incentivize with million dollars win or a lucky draw on vaccines. Not in France, where we had to actually threaten the people with not being able to go to cafes without a vaccine. Not in Belgium, not in the UK. We, to go beyond the two-thirds approval rate to move the vaccine percentage beyond 60%, no society was able to convince the people naturally without threats, without dangling incentives, pieces of meat in front of the public. Does it actually matter that we talk about that, that we bang on again and again and again these failures of science, failures of authorities, failures of intellectual benchmark? It does. It does, because let's have a look at the next challenges we will face. These are not the rising price of pasta or the shortages of petrol. Without mutual, implicit trust, how can we be expected to tackle overwhelming challenges, such as climate change? We all know that we are asked to listen to the science, to believe the science, sometimes even very rudely, but hey, Fair enough. Again, they are experts, right? So, to which science are we going to listen to? Are we going to listen to the old science, the boomer science of the Club of Rome in 1972? If you don't know what was that decision, what was that discussion, well, let's put it in a summary. The end is near. Repent. We can also follow the new science, the millennial science. Same you want to know what it is, the summary is, the end is nearer. Repent. Okay, there are a few novelties like glue yourself to the M25, show your tits on Oxford Street. All of that is very nice, but what will be the decision? What is the outcome we expect? Do we need nuclear energy? Do we need wind energy? Do we need ethanol? Do we need 
What will we support? What will we drive? Who and what will decide it? Do we trust the decision that will be taken? I'm not so sure. And this is the origin, in my opinion, of this discrepancy on climate change. Everybody can look through the window and see that there is not something not quite right with the weather right now. But do we trust the people to take the right decisions? I don't know. I'm not sure. Actually, I am sure, but not in the right way. Assuming that we still can reach the right decision, who can we trust to actually measure the outcome? Can we honestly still trust statistics, national and international statistics, when we know that most of them were actually inaccurate, driven, self-interested? Would you trust any national figure published at the moment? Personally, I'm not so sure. Well, one year ago, the most accurate, again, COVID website was actually developed by individuals, not by institutions. And all institutions in the world were found out to have agendas behind the publications, behind the measurements itself. But hey, so what to do? That is the only question which really matters. In my opinion, to recreate the layer of common vision, to recreate a common timeline for humanity and a common understanding of what is a human saga, we need first to rebuild this layer of implicit trust. Without it, we won't be able to move forward. So trust the WHO, as usual, to show us the way of how not to do it. Okay, so we know that 2020 was pretty much the worst year ever for them. Shit happens, guys. Okay, let's rebound. I fully agree. What to do? Well, why not reopen our drawers and repitch basically something which has already been around for a good five or six years, right? And try to, you know, broaden the message until we reach something where we speak about a broad topic where we can only get global support. Let's talk about malaria. It's a global disease. It's good that we will be able to actually vaccinate the kids. Of course, it will be a massive help for Africa. All of that, check, check, check. Absolute winner. That was actually published three weeks ago. Do you remember it? Do you remember the late September 2021 when malaria, this centuries-old enemy of mankind, was apparently vanquished? No, you can't. Or you should not. Because actually what was so-called announced was not a revolution. This was something, this was a vaccine which existed since 2015. It had been approved by health authorities. It was live. And this is a vaccine. That's great. But it's not the solution. It's not the eradication of malaria. This is a vaccine which is only efficient at 36% after four years. Well, if you start like that and you continue and you dig yourself in, guess what? Probably you won't build this underlying layer of implicit trust you crave and we need.
It may seem very basic, but to recreate credibility for this science, for education, for political entities, actually, it is actually necessary to recreate a common human timeline, not self-serving half-baked buzz. So social media is there for that. That's great. Let's let the entertainers, sorry, the influencers deal with this. But to recreate this credibility, to recreate the layer of science education and politics, which we do need to bring us forward, we need something else. If we know at the moment what not to do, then what to do? So let's start where it all starts. It always starts with approach and attitude. It always starts with me. For me, it is extraordinarily counterproductive to start an argument by trying to blame somebody else. And this is what happens right now. For me, the loss of implicit trust comes squarely from the widening gap between mission statements, positioning, public speeches, mottos, and actual actions, actual decisions, and how they impact the public, how they impact us. Of course, we can always expect a little bit of self-interest. This is not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the mechanical outcome of the discrepancy between public speeches, mission statement, job descriptions, which actually shape our world. We do live in a global world which is still led by a frame of reference, which is all about higher purpose, duty, service, truth, honesty, professionalism. However, when we compare this to the actual actions taken, to the actual decisions made, to the actual research conducted, well, we can only see that there is an enormous discrepancy. And that creates irrevocably, this creates undeniably, this creates a rift which may not even be explicit, but between what we expect and what we know will happen. Simple example, again, taking something which we all share around the world. How did the WHO live up to its own motto? You can just go to who.com and you will see the WHO leads global efforts to expand universal health coverage. Oh, okay, fine. So they are doing social security, I guess. Um, but more directly, we direct and coordinate the world's response to health emergencies. Um, okay. As my lawyer would say, no comment. Nearer to us, let's take just Europe, because we just heard that the WHO was going to actually foster universal health coverage especially in the US probably, but okay. Um, across Europe, we spend each year trillions of euros. And why? It's because we've got actually the best healthcare and the best health coverage system in the whole world. Whether we are Brits, Germans, French, Belgians, we all heard that. We know that even if we interview our own regions, our own countries, this is how it will come up. The sun 
continuously banks on the NHS heroes. So does France, so does the Tet, so does actually everybody. Everybody banked pans and pots last year. Fine, fair enough, I agree. However, if we look at the outcome of what is simply a pandemic, it does not seem very accurate. I would even dare to say that it sounds very contradictory. Yet, all the mantras, all the mission statements, whether from the social security or from WSHO, still remain. So the claim to authority, the claim of implicit trust, completely conflicts with the actual ground reality. But let's move a moment from the masks and the COVID and all the stories, and let's move into wider topics. We were all stunned by Brexit. Not only the Brits, if I'm honest, but we as well, the rest of Europe. Guess what? European institutions were stunned as well by Brexit. Now, a couple of years later already, we've got yet again Europe spitting blood at Poland. Why? Well, because Poland stated the obvious, what we all believed that national constitutions precede foreign laws, be they Europeans. Well, very calmly, the president of the European Commission, supported by the whole CGCE, claimed that following their own jurisprudence, which is based on a case called Enel, uh, this is not the case, and that actually European law supersedes national laws. This is factually wrong, because what this case was saying is that European law supersedes national law whenever they have the mandate to do so. So that's a pretty big jump. But okay, fair enough, fair enough, you know, used to it after 30 or 40 years. Um, and come back to what she actually talks about. Well, what she's talking about is the European Constitution, the very same that was voted out of the window in 2005 in France and Netherlands. The European Constitution, which even occasioned a retreat from Tony Blair from a vote in the UK. Truth to, to speak and, and truth to say, Yes, it was fished back, actually, this European constitution, and it was stealthily reinstated and even extended and actually made a condition for joining the, the European Union for any new country, not through a voted mandate, not through a referendum. It would have failed again, but quite literally, actually, by a committee of wise men. Actually, they should have said by a committee of old men, because it was all previous prime minister, previous presidents coming from the era of Jean Monnet in the 50s and the 60s. So all spry young people who actually were looking to the future. Well, first and foremost, let me say that this is a very strange conception of democracy in general. But what is the direct impact of all of that? Whether you are for Europe or against Europe, whether you believe in the European ideal as laid out by the president of the European Commission, whether you believe that it is important for Europe to have a common law, what you feel is that your vote does not count, your opinion does not count. This is not 
very democratic. No taxation without representation, I thought, was the basis of all of our Western democracies. Seems to have been amended since. But if you do not trust or value, actually, your own public, your own voters, then democracy is just a charade. It is a charade for enlightened people to lead us, peons, towards a new future. Maybe, maybe not. I just would like to have a say into it. Why? Well, because trust goes both ways. I think that if we argue about erosion of public trust, implicit trust, and we are not happy with a couple of events here and there, well, it is too easy as well to just blame the whole thing on personal failings, on shortcomings, or even on personal interest. Okay, this is true, it does happen. This is, this is an element of life that some people are not as clever as they think they are, that we all mis make mistakes, and that sometimes we make the wrong decisions out of what we perceive to be our personal interest. This is not the problem. The problem is that there is no accountability at all in these decisions. And hence, if there is no accountability, what is the legitimacy of the authority? If what I say, and I'm a scientist, is wrong, what happens? Truth to speak, nothing. I'm in charge of a division. I'm in charge of the public interest. And I take a decision out of my own personal interest. What will happen? Let's see. Obviously, I think nothing. I'm a minister and I take decisions during COVID. I take the wrong decisions knowingly. I lie knowingly to the public. I knowingly swear on public television that this or that. And I'm caught red-handed. What happens? So far, nothing. If you're the public, it's not even that you want blood. It's not even that you want head on spikes. Okay, yes, I'm French, I know that. But the reality is that you do expect accountability as an underlying. If that is disappeared, implicit trust, these two-way streets, disappears as well. Naturally, you can say this is a refusal of personal risk. It is true. More and more and more over the past decades, decisions became collective, as in I hide behind the desk. They were taken in the collective interest, although the collectivity was rarely defined. But ultimately, as long as I'm in the forest, what can go wrong? We took the decision. We decided, we think, and so on and so forth. If things go wrong, well, everyone in the collective was wrong, isn't it? How could we know? Everybody thought. How many times did you hear that over the couple, last couple of weeks? Again, let's move away from COVID. Everybody thought that Kabul would hold for at least four to five months. Obviously, all the reports were showing something very, very different, but we all thought so, all of us, right? What will be the outcome? What will be the sanction? What will happen? Not sure. I can just give you the Belgium example. Well, how to judge whether or not decisions are taken correctly? 
Well, you just have to ask the individual, what do you think? Did you take the right decisions? This is literally the Belgian Commission over the management of the COVID-19, headed by nobody else than the Belgian Health Minister of the time, Maggie de Vlock. I'm certain that she will find many, many faults, many, many things to improve on her own decision. I think a party a long time ago invented this very same principle. It was called self-criticism. Worked wonders for communism, didn't it? Well, naturally, the final point port of call is personal interest, not only fear of risk, not only collective decisions, and so on and so forth. Isn't it problematic that we excuse decisions because ultimately, as I heard on television recently, as I read recently the newspaper, we would do the same in the same position. Yeah, well, this is not even a charity decision. This is, well, we are all humans and we all fail. That's fine. That's possibly true. But shouldn't we try and reach for something higher? Shouldn't we try and reach for something a little bit more global than simply answering, how could we know? Or fake it until you make it. Or embrace failure. Or that was what we were told to do. For some of us, it may remind, remind us of the Nuremberg decision and the fact that none of this, none of the above, is actually an excuse. However, if it is not solved, implicit trust will erode the very notion, the very authorities, the very goals which we set out to reach as civilizations, as regions. Welcome back. You may remember a couple of sessions back, I was hinting at the how important I thought the loss of implicit trust would be to build the world of tomorrow. Well, here we are at the edge of 2022, and I have to say that this topic did not disappear at all. We may remember a time where there were national TV programs about science, where we had big names actually leading us into the novelty, into the, the future. We all discovered nuclear energy at the same time. We all discovered the trip to the moon at the same time with explanations, with doctors who actually, in most of our countries, reached actually cult status, icons. They may be Mr. Wizard, they may be Cousteau, they may be Attenborough, they may be Professor Proton, if you want, like in the Big Bang Theory. But the most important thing is that we all shared a moment of national communion, I may say. We all shared for a couple of hours an implicit vision of why the future would be better, why science, why technology would help us, will help our world become a better place. That was not always said like that, but that was pretty much the underlying idea, the underlying vision that science was actually propagating, that science was pushing into the different countries. Today, we still have scientists on expert panels. 
are they playing the same role? Well, they, they hark back to black and white TV programs, but the reality is that they are essentially there as a trademark of serious news, as a stamp of authority, a validation of the quality of the discussion which is held on screen. They may even be virologists, but whenever we don't like the sound of what is said, whenever we don't like so much how it's presented, don't we just zap to the next news channel? Another serious one. We don't have to go fortune for that. If we do that often enough, if we do that in a very professional way, it is certain that we will find a doctorate opinion that matches much better our own. Is it satisfying? Is it the same thing? It is definitely not. And deep down, we know that we just heard the truth we wanted to hear, that we just reconfirmed our own ideas. So, if science and factual research is so important, is that this is a, f a flag, this is an example for many other institutions who suffer from the same loss, the same erosion of trust. This process is sometimes blamed rather easily, I think, on the widespread availability of news, information, theories, science. And of course, all of this down to the internet. And of course, the wrong usage of internet. Because, as you know, people are not that intelligent. So, hence fake news, dark web, all these mysterious elements which actually make the world of today. Social media, for example. I think that this explanation, however interesting, is just condescending. If this is the first and the last war of defense, it is actually rather insulting to the public. It boils down to a very simple statement, which is people can be trusted with the truth. Fortunately, some other people yet to be defined are there to set the record straight. Well, the institutions themselves who had this implicit trust, the institution themselves who had this fantastic role in leading our, uh, our countries, need to actually realize that the blame starts with them. If they start blaming themselves for it, then we've got a much stronger basis on which to rebuild the trust, on which to rebuild the credibility, and ultimately on which to propose and get the buy-in for visions on global projects. The future depends on it, I'm very strongly convinced. So, their first step to try and establish a fair step for this loss of trust was, since now a year and a half, two years, to push forward the agenda of what I would call simply a quality certificate. So we go back to the trust me, I'm a doctor Kavanaugh approach. That was the peer-reviewed studies. They were the only one to be trusted because they were safeguarded against charlatanism. Personally, I always thought that it sounded and smelled a little bit too much like the old bias club. But, fair enough, they were the experts. As it turns out, well, the magical standard did not really 
behave as expected. If you remember, for example, and, and I will take the most obvious example, the peer-reviewed research which was published on hydroxychloroquine by Sagisphere, published and obviously pushed by the Lancet, was not only retracted, but actually was even tagged by the editor-in-chief of the Lancet himself as a phenomenal fraud. Let me take a step back. That is the guy who was leading the peer-reviewed research to make sure that the articles published in this summit of knowledge of science, that is the Lancet, does not publish any bullshit. We were in the middle of COVID. This is not a neutral act. The second thing is that who brought forward this massive fraud? Well, this was certainly not the Lancet. This was certainly not the peer circle, or I don't know how you call it, the peer commission who studied the study. No, it was an open letter published by The Guardian, of all things. So, of course, sure enough, we've got now new, updated, latest generation, republished research guideline from The Lancet. That's fine. That's great. That's fantastic. Am I reassured that the new peer circles now with very, very tough new rules, will behave better, will be more trustworthy than the previous one. Honestly, I'm not so sure. And even if I want to give them the benefit of the doubt, it sounds extremely unlikely that they will ever regain and retain this implicit trust which they had up until this episode. To put it in a more maybe scientific way, the basic principle since Aristotle, which is non-contradiction of events, has gone. What is non-contradiction? Simply, something cannot exist and not exist at the same time. Something cannot be and not be. Well, since two years, the scientific world, the medical world, our authorities try to push agendas where it's not even that non-contradiction does not exist, it's that it's completely gone. And I will take one example, because these are things which actually hit our memories. We pass it over, and then they slowly dilute the trust we've got in the statements we hear. I will take just one example. Vaccines can work and not work at the same time. Vaccines can be efficient but not as efficient. Two examples. Sputnik, it's a vaccine that the Russians are using for now many months, if not years. They were actually the first vaccine out. Still today, not validated by the WHO and by most governments. Why? Still a mystery. Seems that the efficiency is exactly the same as the Sinovac, the Chinese one. But hey, second one, booster jab. So either the vaccine works and two jabs, and you're home and safe. Or it works, except when it does not. And I will come back to an example which is extremely similar. The problem is not that this is true or not true. The problem is not that it is or not the reality. The problem is that if you advance statements, you've got to make sure that they are in themselves logical, that they are true to the picture, and that actually the public can blindly follow what you have just said. This is absolutely not the case at the moment. 
yes, relativism is acceptable in philosophy. The fact that what happens to me depends on my own culture. That is correct. The way I look at things depends on where I come from. However, it is not possible in hard science, it is not possible when you take hardcore decisions based on fact that there is some kind of relative reality which pops up. Scientific debate is part and parcel of science. Scientific debate is actually a condition, a precondition for progress and process. But first, let's stick to facts are facts, theories are theories, and let's push aside agendas and vested interests. Yes, I'm banging on the medicine and COVID, and why? Because it is the most striking example, and this is an example which we shared around the world. It is by far not the only one. It is, however, neither the most insidious. We are basically moving slowly from implicit trust to implicit distrust in experts. What does it mean? You start with science and you end up with authorities in general, because ultimately most of our authorities, especially in the Western democratic world, are based on so-called logical decisions. We've got systems who defend themselves by the logics and the fact that they are built upon science. Implicit trust means that we all have, or we all should have, references that we consider absolute benchmarks. These benchmarks are factual, these benchmarks are neutral. Fundamental to it should be education and science. Okay, neither is, will ever be perfect, but at least they establish reference frames. Formally, when you disagreed with either science or education, the onus was on you, the individual, to prove them wrong, and to prove them wrong in their own field. Fair enough, this was possible. The fact that this reference frame is becoming just another possible truth, like actually the research in The Lancet, ultimately. Maybe right, maybe wrong, depends. We've got to ask our experts what they think. Well, this is not possible. You cannot have a reference frame which refuses its role as reference and just say, hey, you know what, I'm just here to organize the thoughts. It works perfectly as long as you try to organize a debate, but you do not organize decisions, you do not organize science, you do not organize research in that case. If the reference frame disappears, well, why not think that the earth is flat, that we are led by a giant army of lizards hidden behind our governments, or that Bill Gates is actually including chips in our vaccines. Yes, all of that seems outlandish. All of that can be logical. The erosion of this shared frame of reference hence, is not due for me to a sudden lowering of our collective brain power. It does not come either by hidden people doing nasty things out of the internet or any other possible conspiracy. The first port of call to understand why this loss of erosion comes from analyzing the benchmarks themselves, how they behave and the message they send implicitly to the people. This creates actually for me 
a much more dangerous reality than any outlandish theory. This creates a much more dangerous reality than any blame allocated at the moment. This is not to do with only the consequences of this loss of implicit trust, but it has also to do with where they come from.